Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today's episode is chapter 13 of the book, The Attributes of God, and the title of this chapter is The Problems of Conventional Christology. Just to start out, Christology, as any ology, is basically just the study of Christ. And we've been going over various things about God in this book, namely his attributes, as the title indicates. As Christians, we believe that Christ is himself divine and the very manifestation of God, and so any Christian has to deal with the issues that come up with this person that was a carpenter that lived a little over 2,000 years ago and was killed on a cross, and as far as Christians are concerned, was resurrected, but through him their salvation, and he is God to them. And so, in introducing this problem, or Christology in general, what would you like to add to that? Well, the first is that all of the discussion that we've had to this point is necessary groundwork to be able to engage in this discussion. So without notions of what we mean by omnipotence and omniscience, what we mean by immutability, passability, and God's relationship to time, the questions of Christology really can't be responsibly discussed. We're now at a point where we can responsibly discuss these issues. So that's the first observation. The second is that in this chapter, there are really two very distinct different problems that are addressed. One is the scriptural problem of Christology, which is a very distinct problem from the philosophical or logical problem of Christology. And so the question, what do the writings of the New Testament say about Christ and what do they claim about Christ? is very distinct from the claims made by the New Testament and or those that followed the first centuries of Christians make logical sense. Were they logically coherent? Can they be asserted in a way that A, normal people could understand it, and or B, even if they couldn't understand it, were they able to come up with some coherent view of a man who is both fully divine and fully human? especially given that usually in the tradition what we mean by human is logically exclusive of what we mean by divine. All right, great, yeah. I just have a quote that we can read here from your book. It says, The traditional explanation that Christ is one person with two natures, one divine and one human, was adopted at Chalcedon, which is one of the councils, like the Council of Nicaea, I'm sure we've all heard of. Anyway, that was one of the councils. And remained the consensus Christian position until the 19th century when developments in biblical scholarship and logic pointed to numerous deficiencies in traditional formulation. The traditional explanations leave a lot to be desired, both in terms of logical consistency and historical adequacy. Like you said, those are the two problems we're going to tackle. So let me introduce the first problem, which is the historical problem, and it is basically this. So in the tradition, you understand that Christ is fully divine and fully human, and that's all well and good to say, but it actually, like we just read in biblical critical scholarship, when you read the text and understand the beliefs, it doesn't quite seem that some of the New Testament texts agree with that exactly. For example, of the three synoptics, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, meaning those go together and they tell the same story in the same quarter, and then there's John, and that's kind of a separate thing altogether. We'll get into that in a second. But basically, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the time when 
according to the text at least, Christ becomes divine, keeps getting pushed back. So in one of the Gospels, Christ becomes divine at his resurrection. In another Gospel, Christ becomes divine at his baptism. And then the other one claims that Christ became divine basically at his conception, the, the virgin birth. And then there's the Gospel of John that claims that Christ is a pre-existing eternal word that's always been divine. So let's break that down. The earliest writings are those of Paul, and Paul basically held the view that Christ, there's some question as to whether Paul held a divine preexistence. There's a good argument to be made that he did, but there's also a competing consideration in his writings where it's clear that Paul regards Christ as having been exalted as a result of the resurrection to be divine. So that's Paul's view. It's a fairly consistent view that he holds in the genuine writings of Paul may be divergences with that in the Pauline writings. And by Pauline writings, I mean those writings which are in the New Testament attributed to Paul, but probably were not written by him. The view that Jesus became divine, it's not really that he became divine. In the Gospel of Mark, Christ has claimed to be the Son of God at the time of his baptism. Hence, we have the voice uh, as he comes out of the water. This is my beloved Son. This is uh, an acclamation from the Psalms that the Jews clearly would have understood, given their familiarity with what was happening. This was a divine adoption as a son. And so the father is adopting the son to be everything that he is, essentially. He's giving Christ all of the glory and honor and so forth that is given to him. And most scholars regard the Gospel of Mark as being the earliest of the Gospels. You then have Matthew and Luke who make a kind of a quantum leap beyond the view of Mark. Mark doesn't have an infancy story. There's nothing about the birth of Christ. There's nothing to suggest that it was special. But in Matthew and Luke, we get the infancy narratives. And Christ is made divine because he's begotten by the Father. He's the Son in virtue of some kind of an actual filial relationship. How we would define that relationship would be a matter of large discussion. But suffice it to say that he's viewed as divine from birth. Then we have the Gospel of John, which has in the prologue the assertion that Christ was the Word and that the Word was God, and so he's deemed to be divine, you know, even before the beginning of the earth. That all has to be put into the context of the view that the Synoptic Gospels, the Gospel of John is different, but the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, make it pellucidly clear that Jesus did not make claims of divinity for himself in the sense that he claimed I'm divine, or, you know, I'm God. <laughs> and in fact, we get this response to the rich man when the rich man calls him good master. And Jesus's response from the more developed Christian view is very surprising. Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one, and that is God. And Jesus is not including himself in the same category as God. And in fact, he's refusing to be put in the same category as God, given that response. And that response is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels also make it very clear that the disciples didn't understand the claim, even the claims that Jesus made, they didn't understand. So, for instance, we get these references that are in Mark and Luke that the Son of Man, and this is a quote from, from Mark 9, the Son of Man will do, be delivered into the power of man. They will put him to death, and three days later, after he has been put to death, he will rise again. To our ears, that sounds like, wow, how could you get clearer? He's going to be dead three days, and he's going to rise again. But then Mark adds, but they did not understand what he said, and were afraid to ask him. And Luke adds, it was hidden for them so that they should not see the meaning of it. In other words, it's like 
they just didn't get it. <laughs> he makes these claims, and it's very clear in Matthew and Luke when the claim is made by the women that Jesus is resurrected, the notion of the resurrection is the furthest thing from the minds of the disciples as a possibility. It's like, it's what are you talking about? That's <laughs> You're crazy. And so during his lifetime, the notion that the disciples who were with him would have understood that he was claiming to be a divine being is just impossible given the message of the Gospels. And I'm going to mention just a, kind of a, an ongoing debate that's developed since the book was published. I made some notes of it primarily in the third volume because this is something that had developed by the time the third volume was written. But you have this debate between what I call the they refer to it as the Early High Christology Club, and you have a number of scholars who are saying that it's just impossible. You have Paul, who all of a sudden is saying things that would include the notion that somehow Jesus is considered to be one with the Father in a sense that he is divine. Now, there are a number of scholars, Maurice Casey, Gaze of Ermesh, and J.D.G. Dunn, all very top-notch scholars, who argued that given the notion of monotheism in Judaism, the notion that Christ would be considered to be divine in the same category as God is just impossible in a Jewish context, and the, the notion that Christ was fully divine couldn't have arisen in that context. It would have had to have arisen after 60 when Christians largely left and went to Syria, and there were developments in the Greek Isles. And their argument is that with Paul, that kind of impediment doesn't exist because he's talking with Gentiles and they don't have this notion of monotheism. But then you have a response by scholar Martin Engel and followed up by scholars like Richard Baucom, especially Larry Hurtado. But there are a number of others, I could name about a dozen of them, who are members of the Early High Christology Club, who all claim that by the time that Paul is, is just beginning to write, that they have this developed notion of Christology, a high Christology, where Christ is already considered to be in the same category as God. And because there's only one, how do they work that out? If there's only one God and you've got two different beings, because nothing could be clear in the New Testament than that the resurrected Christ was not seen to be identical with the Father. And so that's a, an issue that they're, this tension is what they're working on. There's been a lot of work done in biblical scholarship since the first volume was written that addresses this historical issue. But I think a couple of observations that are just not disputable are appropriate. One is that Paul did not know the human Christ. He did not know him before his death. He encountered him on the road to Damascus in a vision. And so he knew of the resurrected Christ as he appeared in vision to Paul, but he didn't walk with him during the time that he was a human being. So he didn't know the human Jesus. He may have known of him, but he certainly didn't know him. And the second observation is that Paul rarely, I, I mean, I, there are a couple of disputed instances where there may be assertions that Christ is divine, but Paul doesn't call Jesus God. He doesn't refer to him as Theos, and certainly not as Hotheos, which is the Greek term for God and the God. And even in the Gospel of John, there's a distinction made between the God, Hotheos, the Father, and the way that it's used for Christ. Raymond Brown, who was the foremost authority ever on the Gospel of John, suggests that perhaps John was making a distinction between the kind of divinity that we're asserting for Christ and the kind of divinity that we're asserting for the Father. So, 
you've got all these issues, and it's really important to be clear about what we're dealing with in terms of New Testament scholarship. And the one thing that is clear in New Testament scholarship is there are a lot of issues still being debated, and that's a wonderful thing, but I wanted to update that discussion. All right, so yeah, the main issues historically are whether or not the Gospels actually support this dual nature. Like you said, it doesn't quite seem that they do. In addition to that, like you said, and Mormons will agree with this, but most of Christians view Jesus and the Father as one being, as opposed to two beings, which brings other historical problems where Jesus is praying to the Father or making statements, even in John, the one with what is, well, two terms. There's low Christology, where you see Christ as more of a human who had divine power given by God, or high Christology, meaning he's literally God. Even in the highest Christological book of the New Testament, which is John, he says things like this. In John, it says that Christ is sent by the Father and does the Father's work, not his own. He says his authority is wholly dependent on the Father. Here's the scripture. It says, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. I have not spoken of my own authority. The Father who sent me has himself given me commandment what to say and what to speak. So unless you really tweak that, which I know people do, it's pretty clear, at least to me, that what the author intended was to say that Christ was sent by God and not that he was the same being as God. Yeah, and, and you get a you get a kind of development, and again, I discussed this at some length in the third volume, but you get people like Richard Balcom who want to make the assertion that somehow Paul wanted to include Jesus within the same divine identity as the Father. And because there's only one God, he wanted to make Jesus one with the Father in a sense that somehow they had a quasi-identity relationship. I criticize Balcom on both the textual evidence and on certainly on logical grounds, because on logical grounds, what he's asserting turns out to just be modalism, which, again, we'll discuss further when we get to the third volume. But modalism is the view that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are simply three names for the same being, like Superman, Clark Kent, and the top reporter for the Daily Planet are for Superman. The same being, just three different names, three different ways of appearing. All of these are issues that arise out of the text. My view is that there's not one view of Christ and his status in the New Testament writings. There are different views. And how they held Christ in relation to the Father is certainly described in different terms. And it appears to me that they had different notions of who and what Christ was in terms of his humanity and his divinity. In other words, I don't feel like we can get dogmatic and say, well, this is the biblical view, because I don't believe there is such a thing as the biblical view on this issue. There are are biblical views, or there are views by various writers whose works got included in the compilation of works that got put together in the New Testament, is the more accurate way to say it. So what we're dealing with, nevertheless, is a basic issue. And it's the same issue now that the scholars are dealing with, that they dealt with at the, the Council of Chalcedon. How is it that Christ can be deemed to be divine if there's only one divine being, fully divine being, the Father, and yet Christ is deemed to be fully divine? So that's the problem of the Trinity. The second problem is not the problem of the Trinity, it's the problem of Christology. How could Christ be both a human being, fully human, and also a divine being, fully divine? Because what we mean by a human is certainly distinct and disparate from what we mean by a divine being in almost all common usage. And so it's a logical problem. So we have the historical problem and the logical problem. And I wasn't writing a book on biblical scholarship 
though I admit that in the third volume I go into that in some detail. Nevertheless, at this point, what I'm really dealing with is the developed problem that is still plaguing New Testament scholars and, and studies to try to make sense of Christ. So this is kind of the reason I brought this up. It seems to me the debate between the high Christology and the low Christology in the New Testament is just a way of reframing the logical question that was addressed at Chalcedon. How could Christ be fully divine and fully human? doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so how do we make sense of that? I don't want to assert it doesn't make any sense, because their question was, given that it's true, how do we make sense of it? That's the Christian question. Before we dive straight into the logical problem, do you want me to read anything about the, you had let you list out A, B, C, D of what we learn or what's imposed on us from the New Testament understanding of Jesus, or have we already pretty much discussed yeah, that? I think we need to go through that. Yeah, I think we need to go through that. And I also think we need to say that um, it, the New Testament held that Christ was impeccable. That is, he couldn't sin, or he didn't sin, not that he couldn't sin. Um, and yet he was morally responsible. So that's a separate question that we'll get into in the next chapter, obviously. And then we've got the questions about, well, what does the New Testament say about Christ? What does it say about um, the relationship between his humanity and divinity? Are there any conclusions that we can reach? And I reach, um, I believe, at least five of them in, in, my, in my book. So I think that's important. The conclusions that we can reach, at least from the New Testament text, however you interpret that, that's fine, but just based on the text itself, the following constraints on Christology seem to be imposed by the New Testament understandings of Jesus and modern biblical scholarship. A. The historical Jesus had a human range of consciousness and understanding which was conditioned by the time and culture in which he lived, which was first century Judaism. B. The earliest Christians experienced salvation linked to Christ's resurrection and continued spiritual presence in the Christian community, which led to the understanding that Jesus shared in the divine status. And C, the earliest Christians understood that Jesus had been exalted by the Father and granted divine status through gracious participation in the Father's glory. D, an early Christology developed, found in Paul, and developed further in the Gospel of John, that explained Christ's divine status in part in terms of Christ's pre-existence in glory with the Father, which glory the Son temporarily laid aside by becoming human. And E, the Son's divine status was subordinate to and dependent upon the divinity of the Father in a way that was understood to be consistent with Jewish monotheism. So those are the conclusions we can draw from the New Testament. What I want to point out are ways in which a lot of people frame Jesus, and he's really not quite human. So a lot of people maintain that Christ voluntarily gave his life. He's on the cross, but at any moment that he wished to, he could have dispatched the Roman soldiers, overcome the entire Roman legion, and come down off of the cross and maintained his life. So, you know, he really didn't suffer in the way that we do when it's hopeless and we can't do anything about it because Christ was in control the entire time. That seems to be a docetic way of looking at it. Docetism is the view that arose very early in Christianity. In fact, it's addressed in the epistles of John, the view that Christ only appeared to be human. He was, in fact, fully divine all along and that his humanity was merely an appearance that he puts on, but not really a fact about him. And so when I say it's docetic, what I mean is, is there's this early heresy, if you will, that, that's criticized in the New Testament itself that warns us against thinking of Jesus in terms where he's not really fully human. 
And the other is that Jesus, oh, he's like us in all respects. This is according to Hebrews. It's like us in all respects, except for he never sinned. And it's like, well, wow, <laughs> he's like us, but he never sinned. What's it like if he never knew guilt? He's never experienced guilt in his life, that kind of thing. So we have these kinds of assertions. And the question is, are we asserting that Jesus really was omnipotent all along, really was so divinely good? that? And there are a lot of people who hold this. Not only did Jesus freely choose not to sin, but he couldn't possibly have sinned. He was impeccable, essentially. That means that by his very nature, he couldn't do anything wrong because he's God. And God, by his very nature, can't do anything wrong. So Jesus appears to be human in these respects, but he's not really human like we are because he can't really experience what we do or participate in the kinds of activities we participate in. He has all kinds of powers. You know, it's like when Jesus is growing up, he's omnipotent. He's just a kid and he finds out that as he goes along, he comes to a puddle and he jumps it with ease. And then he comes to a large river and jumps that with ease. Then he finds out he can jump an entire Galilean Sea anytime he wants because he's omnipotent. He can do anything. You know, that would be nonsense. Of course, the New Testament doesn't make any such claim about Jesus. But one would have to think that if Jesus were truly omniscient, that's the kind of thing that would have happened. And so the questions that we ask are the kinds of questions that arise naturally from, well, are the Gospels really asserting that Jesus was divine in the same respect that the Father was, fully divine in the same respect? And do the Gospels really assert that Jesus was fully human in the same way that we are? I mean, fully human who participates in, in making choices where he's truly confronted by the possibility of going wrong. And, you know, what does it mean for a person who's never had to repent to say that he's fully human? Well, we have a number of people, and it's very common in Mormonism to assert that Jesus knew all along everything that everybody was thinking, and he knew everything that was going to come. He was omniscient all along. So he doesn't really experience human life anything like the way we experience human life. It's a completely different kind of experience. As I said, that's the kind of docetism that I think is being warned against in the epistles of John. And I think that it, at least as, and we'll get into this with respect to the kinds of assertions made in Hebrews and in Alma 7, where Christ truly learns compassion because he fully participates in the human condition, it's essential that Christ is fully human. It's essential that he participates in what we participate in in order to have the kinds of experiential knowledge that are essential for him to really have compassion for us. And so that's what's at issue here. It's a very important question in Christian theology. This is not just something that eggheads come up with when they think too much. This is the kind of question that ought to occur to any thoughtful Christian. And in fact, it, it did occur. It's occurred not only early in Christian history, it's occurred throughout Christian history. And it's something, as I think I've been able to suggest in the competition between the early High Christology Club and the late High Christology Club of scholars, that it's still ongoing. It's a discussion that and, you know, and they read the historical texts and documents differently. But now I want to talk about the, the theological issues and the logical issues, because it's what I address primarily in the book. Just to introduce that, I mean, we've pretty much gone over the bare bones of it. How can this being, which is a god, having properties such as living forever, being omnipotent, being omniscient, omnipresent, incorporeal, immutable, impassable, those seem to be essential properties of God as traditional Christianity understands God, as opposed to being fully human at the same time, living for a finite time, not being omnipotent, not having basically any of these, just being a human, which seems to be the opposite of God. The way we seem to define God is basically everything that humans aren't. Yeah, I mean, we're limited in knowledge, we're limited in power, 
We're limited in the scope of our spatial extension and influence. We are corporeal. We're certainly subject to change, and we experience suffering, all things which seem to be impossible for a being that would be fully divine. Now, let me talk about what an essential property is. There are two ways of assessing essential properties. One is to say that they're essential to the identity of the person, and the second is to say that they're essential to the kind of being or kind of thing that one is. So it may be, for instance, what's essential to being the person that I am is a specific kind of DNA. I have a DNA signature that's unique to me. But there are other things that may be unique to me as an individual. The DNA that is in my body is essential to the being that I am. I couldn't be me without it. There may be other things about me that I couldn't be me without because they define me as the being that I am. But when we're talking about essential and non-essential properties, we're talking about properties of a kind. So what we're talking about are like this thing wouldn't be a mammal if it didn't have hair, if it weren't warm-blooded, and the kinds of properties that define what mammals are. They wouldn't be mammals without those kinds of properties. They have to be viviparous. And so those are essential properties of kind, mammal. Those are the kinds of properties that we're talking about when we're talking about humanity and divinity, because humanity is a kind of being, and divinity is a kind of being. And so I'm not talking about properties that are essential to the individual identity of a person talking about properties that are essential to the kind of thing now. And when I say essential, it couldn't be that thing unless it had those properties. So if a thing didn't have hair and weren't warm-blooded, it couldn't possibly be a mammal. And so if a thing didn't have the essential properties of divinity, it couldn't be divine in the same way. That's the logical issue when we're talking about essential properties. When we're saying essential, we're saying that they're definitive of the kind of thing that we're talking about. We're talking about being divine, the essential properties of divinity, a thing can't be divine without these properties, and those that are essential to humans, a thing could not possibly be human without these properties. It's very important to have this notion of essential and non-essential properties in order to continue the discussion. Does that cover the logical problem as far as you want to go? Well, it introduces the logical problem, at least. Let's take an essential property, that of being created. Essentially, human beings in the tradition are created beings. It's of the essence that humans are contingent. They come into being at a specific time. They don't have eternal backward existence. It's essential to divinity that God does not have a beginning, that he's uncreated, and that his existence is necessary. It's not contingent. And so we can just take this one property to get an idea of a property that seems to be something that couldn't be held by a being that is both divine and that is human, because one cannot be uncreated in all respects and also created in all respects that are essential. All right. So, yeah, I mean, that pretty much lets us know what this logical problem is that needs to be solved. And I'm going to move on to the next section here called the Christological Controversy. And in a second, I'll ask you kind of what the actual controversy is or what you mean by controversy. But just as you've been saying, the group later known as the Docetists, are trying to assert that Christ was fully divine, and he only appeared to suffer, he only appeared to be human, and he only appeared to have any human limitations, and that he was actually fully divine. Yeah, including he didn't really possess a body. I mean, it's a pretty amazing position. The appearance is thorough. It's like platonic appearances. In Platonism, the distinction between appearance and reality is one that is basic, and what's being asserted is that what we see of Jesus in his humanity is the kind of appearance that people who really don't understand what we're looking at will take to be the case. 
but it's not really the case at all. Jesus really isn't human in any sense. All right. I mean, so they're basically asserting that basically Jesus is God walking around in a human suit, or that he's using this human body as a puppet. Right. It's even more than that. It's that his body appears to be corporeal, but it ain't. Oh, so he's even kind of an illusion, if you will. Yeah, he's actually a spirit, and but we take him to have a body. All right. And that seems fairly extreme in one direction of his divinity, though I've heard some defenses of this, such as, I don't remember exactly what the book's called, but it's actually from a Jewish point of view, not about Christ per se, but kind of more the Hebrew understanding was that God could manifest himself in something called an avatar, and it didn't necessarily even need to be limited to one being. For example, God appeared to... Jacob wrestled with the, with an angel, so... <laughs> Which is a very corporeal thing to do if you stop and think about it. Right, but I'm just saying, there are some views that God does just use an avatar and he can split himself in any way, and I heard that kind of as a defense of this. Well, it's more like, okay, God appears in human form in visions in the Old Testament, right? So in Ezekiel, it's expressed in the first chapter of Ezekiel, God sees a vision of God upon a throne, and the Merkava, which is actually a throne chariot, and he goes out of his way to say in three different ways that God had a human form. He appears to Moses in a human form. He appears to Isaiah in a human form. So when he appears, he appears to have a human form. But the Jews would say, well, God doesn't really have a human form. He doesn't really look like George Burns. That's just a form that he's taken up so that we can understand him. He actually is something quite different. But God can make us see a human form if he wants. Is that similar to this view, or are they saying something completely different? Yeah, I think it is just another way of stating the same view that Christ only appears to be human, but he's really not. He appears to be corporeal, but he's really not. The way I see it, the main problem for this is that, at least as far as Christianity is concerned, is, again, that human aspect. The whole point of Christ, or not the whole point, but the whole appeal of Christ is that he was God literally becoming man so that he could suffer as a man to learn what it was like to be a person. It's not so gracious and a marvelous thing if he didn't actually give up anything or he didn't experience any of that. If it was just all an illusion, then it kind of seems like it's kind of a cop-out. Yeah, there he is on the cross appearing to suffer, but in fact he's just blissful as ever. Nothing touches him, and he's only appearing to suffer. It's not real suffering. That, that seems to really cheapen the experience to me. You preserve his divinity at the expense of the whole point of Christianity. Yeah, I, I mean, there'd be a lot you would have to overlook to take that view. All right, and so what is the, is, I mean, have we explained it enough? I didn't understand what you meant by the controversy. What's the controversy here? Well, the controversy is that all, there were a number of different positions that arose in early Christianity beginning, you know, the patristic discussion. So you get a discussion beginning at about 200 AD where people who are trained in philosophy are trying to make sense of the assertion that Christ is divine when he actually appears as a human. And you get different ways of working this out. So, for instance, by about 250, you get Apollinarianism, which is the view that assumes a Platonic theory of, of a person, that the person consists of a spirit, a soul, and a material body. And what Apollonius suggested was that the divine logos constituted Jesus' spirit while his body and soul were human. So there's a part of Jesus that is divine, and that is his reason, if you will. But his body and his spirit that animate him are fully human. So Jesus was really literally just God clothed in a human body. 
But this position was largely rejected and for a good and sufficient reason that Jesus doesn't really share in human experience if he remains omniscient and omnipotent throughout his life. He really doesn't experience anything in the way we do. I don't know how you can possibly suffer if you're omnipotent. If you're omnipotent, you can command your body not to feel pain, it seems to me. It doesn't feel pain, so it has a way of reducing again to docetism. Let's talk about Nestorianism as well. This, this is a very important position. Nestorianism arose after the Council of Nicaea, which didn't address the theory of Christology. It addressed, it, uh, of course, the notion of the Father and the Son and whether or not Christ was created at some time. And it attempted to explain the divine and human natures in Christ as two different wills that were somehow in unity as one. So you've got a human will that is defined by limited knowledge, limited power, and so forth. And then you've got a divine will, which is defined by omniscience and omnipotence and all of the attributes of deity. But somehow they're still just, you know, they're, they're in one person. But the notion was that there's no way to put these things together and just have one person. You have, at best, you have a, a split mind. The problem is, is they're in such unity that they have access to one another. And so, you know, Nestorianism turned out to be both a logical and an anthropological mess. All right. No, yeah. And I can see pretty clearly how. <laughs> well, and you can see how he arrived at that conclusion. I mean, it's like, well, we've got one part of him that's human. It's not going to be the same as the divine part because I can't put those two together. So I'm going to say that he's got both, but somehow they're united in a unity, the way that the Gospel of John talks about unity. And the question is, well, does that work? And I suggest that logically and anthropologically it doesn't. Okay, so next we're going to go over some traditional responses. When I say traditional, I mean traditional Christianity. You know, just basically people that aren't Mormons, I guess. <laughs> and so, to start this off with a quote, it says, The orthodox resolution for the problems that we've been talking about of the Christological controversy culminated at the Council of Chalcedon, which was about 451 AD. So, still very early. That's early. Anyway, it declared, that Christ was one person with two separate natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And this is still something that is a view to this day. So now we're going to talk about this two-nature theory and some issues that come up with that. There are some subsequent councils which have addressed the issues, and I think the Christian scholars would want to say we've, we've added some additional clarity since Chalcedon. But this is still the dominant explanation and accepted by most churches in the tradition. There are some that are not creedal traditions, like the Disciples of Christ, for instance, don't accept the creeds. But in the creedal tradition, Chalcedon is kind of both the high watermark and the most essential assertion of what one must accept to be a, a creedal Christian. We're going to go over some problems with these, but we're not trying to belittle these people. These were believing Christians coming together, trying to solve this problem. You can see this isn't just some little problem. Like, this kind of is the whole crux of Christianity. You have to make this work to make Christianity work. It's essential. And so these are very devout people trying to solve this. And Mormons often criticize the creeds or the councils that come together, but these are devoted Christians trying to use what they had. We say, oh, it's not a revelation, and it's very confusing. True, but at the same time, they probably were praying about it, and as you can guess, you can try to pray about this now, you're not probably going to get a revelation exactly. So they're doing the best they had with their brains, which is something that I'm sure is highly commendable. Another quote here, it says, Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God, truly man, 
consisting also of a rational soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards to his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with regards to his manhood. Like us, in all respects, apart from sin, as we discussed earlier, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of nature being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence. So, there are a lot of terms being thrown around here that are really difficult for us to discuss in English. The first is the term nature, physis in Greek, and what we mean by a nature, in this discussion, what we need is a nature of a kind, the way that I've laid it out. So, to be a mammal is to participate in a nature of a kind. It's not the identity of a person that is at issue. What does it mean to be a substance? And the notion of substance in Greek is highly equivocal. But what they mean to be of one substance is that Christ has all the properties that are essential to be divine, and he also has all of the properties essential to be human, and he is just one person and not two. That's what they're asserting. And so the notion of substance here would have to be one of asserting that these are the essential properties of this kind of thing. That's what a substance is at least in this terminology and the way that it's used here. But you've got to understand that in Greek, substance has a broad range of meaning. The field of terminology that can be addressed by the term substance is very hard to pin down. And so there's still a good deal of wiggle room in this particular formulation. So what's essential to grasp is the two-nature theory of Christology that was adopted at Chalcedon consists of essentially three claims. One is that Christ is a single person, and he's that person identified in the New Testament who walked around the Palestinian countryside during his lifetime. The second is that this single person possessed both fully human and fully divine natures. And the third claim is that these two natures were and are simultaneously present at once in Jesus, both while he was human and after he was resurrected. Right. And in the book, you kind of go, I mean, you kind of did go into that, but like what were some understandings of the word nature in medieval times? Well, as I've said, the word nature, I mean, it has basically the same semantic field as the way we use the term nature. We can say that a, a person does this by nature, or it's natural for that person to do it, or nature can mean the way that the laws work in the physical universe. Nature can be the way that things just operate. But it, as it's used at Kelsen, a nature seems to be, as I said, that collection of essential properties that are definitive of the kind of thing that the beings that belong to that kind are. So all mammals have certain properties. We could also say that all members of a species have their members of a kind as well. And so all members of the human species have certain essential properties in common. We all have a specific type of DNA. We all have the capacity for rational thought if we have normal functioning brains. We all have the capacity for language. We all have warm blood. We all have hair unless we have alopecia. And then we have an explanation for why we don't have hair, which would be the normal situation. We're all born alive, not hatched in eggs, that kind of thing. So what it means by a nature is like a human nature. I have a human nature. You have a human nature, and we have this nature in common, and it's definitive of the kind of thing that we are as a human. All right. Now, this is related to that. It's in the book 
if you examine closely these claims of these two natures, you actually kind of come up with a third nature. So you have one nature where he's God the Son, a member of the Godhead. Some people claim God himself. Christ the man, fully man. So those are two natures right there. But the one that Christianity clings to is actually a combination of the two, not either one in particular. And so you actually come up with three natures there, which is interesting. What's interesting is it's not only Christ that has this third nature, though Christ has it in a unique and special and full way that human beings don't, but humans can also participate in the divine nature. This is a discussion I have in the last chapters of the third volume and what it means to say that humans can participate in the divine nature. And we want to say not merely that humans participate in, but are of the divine nature. So, for instance, I can participate in an avian nature because birds have warm blood, and so I have a property in common with birds. But I'm not avian. I'm not a bird. And so there is actually this third nature, and there's this sharp distinction between human nature and divine nature. But somehow we now have a third nature that includes both of them. And the question is, how could that possibly be when what we mean by divine nature seems to be logically exclusive of what we mean by human nature? Okay. So, I mean, that kind of expands the problem. We won't get into it too much, but this is an exclusively Mormon, but like kind of Western ideas of the soul of man. We would kind of believe kind of the same thing, that we have some sort of spiritual entity within a physical human body, and that makes us who we are, and we're kind of two natures. So what's the difference between that idea and Christ? Well, when we're speaking of humans, we usually speak of giving in to human nature, and we also have a spiritual nature. But our spiritual nature is not the same as a divine nature. So we would want to make maybe a fourth <laughs> kind of nature. Humans have a spiritual nature that is, once it's created, immortal and can't be killed, at least in the tradition. In Mormonism, and we'll talk about this, of course, in the next chapter, it's radically different because we share in the same nature as Christ in a much more complete way because we too are uncreated. But we'll get into that later when we're going to be talking about the Mormon Christology or a Mormon Christology. But it's important to recognize in common Christianity that there are two very distinct natures within human beings. There's this natural man kind of nature that is defined by the desires, wants, needs, and passions of the body, and a spiritual nature which isn't subject to those kinds of passions. And the human nature is mortal and dies, but the spiritual nature is immortal and lives on past the death of the body. So we have these two natures in human beings in traditional Christian thought. And so when we begin to talk about natures, as I said, maybe we come up with even a fourth nature because we have this spiritual nature of human beings that seems to be quite distinct from the spiritual nature of Christ, which is a divine nature. So as I said, once we begin to talk in these terms and we use the term when we're talking about a physis, we're talking about in Greek or natura in Latin, and they have distinct semantic ranges in both Greek and in Latin, but they have also both ranges the Greek range and the Latin range seem to be subsumed in the English discussion of the term nature. Okay, makes sense. And then continuing this nature discussion, in your book you put, there are at least two questions posed by the two natures creed. One, how can anything have both a property and its complement without violating the law of non-contradiction? And two, how can a single person have two natures? Well, let's talk about what a complement is. A complement is the denial of the assertion. So when I say, how can it have a complement and also the property, I'm saying it has both the property and the denial that it has that property in common. So 
we have this assertion that we have a divine nature. That means that Christ is omniscient because that's essential to the divine nature. And he also has a human nature, so we deny that he has omniscience because human beings don't have omniscience. So we assert both that Christ is omniscient and also that he's not omniscient. That's what we're saying when we say that it has both a property and its complement. And that seems to be just an outright contradiction. And the second is, how could they be present in a single person? And, and this was what, remember, Nestorianism did. It put both natures in a single person, but they didn't seem to be able to fit in a single person because what I assert of a person, I also deny of that person in terms of the range of knowledge, in the range of power, in the relationship to time, in relationship to ability to change, ability to sin. All of these things seem to be asserting one thing and then denying it. When I assert that Christ has a temporal relationship to the universe as a human being, but if he's timeless, has no such relationship as God. No being could, in all respects, have no temporal relationship to the natural world and also have a full human temporal relationship to the natural world. Those just seem to be outright contradictions. So what we have is an outright logical contradiction that we're trying to solve. Okay. All right, so you have this metaphor in the book about this mythological creature called a centaur, which is half human and half horse, and so kind of like from the waist down, it's got the entire body of a horse with four legs and hooves and everything, and then from the point where the horse's head would attach, you've got yourself the torso of a man. And so this thing has both the horse nature and a human nature, but rather than trying to separate them, saying it has a human nature and a horse nature, no, it has its own nature because it is one thing. It actually has the nature or the properties of having hooves and having hands. Yeah, so what we want to do, it's a common logical strategy. These are called duplicative propositions to say as one nature, I have one property and as another nature, I have the complement, but I have both natures. So the centaur, as a human being, does not have hooves, but as a horse does have hooves. But the centaur, as a human being, has hands, but as a horse, it does not have hands. And that's true of the centaur. And so it, has, and it ha physically has both natures. And so we're looking at a way, oh, well, that kind of reduplicative proposition where I'm both asserting that it has a nature and that it also doesn't have a nature seems to be true of the centaur and logically possible. So maybe we solve the problem. That's the way that reduplicative propositions are used to try to solve the logical problem of Christology. Okay. And then in the book, you go over various problems with this reduplicative proposition strategy. And so can you kind of, well, I guess, and you say the problems are things such as there seems to be properties which are possessed by the person Christ such that they are incompatible so it's not like it's just something that you can possess too, you can mold them together, but you're being omniscient and not omniscient, they are not compatible in the same being. Consider the following Christological affirmations of the traditional theology. You have P1, Christ as God is uncreated, but Christ as a man is a created being. Or P2, Christ as God never came into existence, but has always existed, but Christ as a man came into existence and has not always existed. So those two things can't be present in the same being. It's different than saying something is an amalgamation of two things and it just happens to have a different nature that's represented. These things can't go together. Yeah, and so it seems that it can't be the case that a human being is uncreated in all respects as God is. And God can't be created in some respects, and so God can't be a created being. 
And so the analogy with the centaur is not going to work because we have a property here that defines the entire nature and not just different physical parts of a being. What we do is we simply focus and say, well, you're not solving the logical problem because the properties that we're dealing with are not the kinds of physical parts that a centaur has. They're the kinds of ontological properties that are definitive of an entire being. So your reduplicative strategy won't work. Right. And then a guy named Thomas Morris has suggested that he can save this idea, basically. And you say a review of his arguments may be instructive because his defense of the traditional two-nature Christology is the most informed and sophisticated in recent scholarship, in your opinion. And so what is his argument and what do you think it works so well? And that's still my opinion. He wrote his book clear back in the 1990s, and it's still the best work, in my opinion, on the logical problem of Christology. Thomas Morris was a first-rate philosopher. He left to become a famous consultant for businesses. He was at Notre Dame. In any event, what he came up with is known as the two minds theory of Christology. And what he did is he looked at the commissurotomy types of experiments. A commissurotomy is you have a body that joins the two hemispheres of the brain, the corpus callosum. When people have grand mal seizures, sometimes they will go in and sever the commissure that joins the two hemispheres of the brain to keep the activity of the seizure in one hemisphere from passing to the other hemisphere. And there are a number of people who've had this operation. And here's the interesting thing. The left brain is the area of our brain where we articulate thought in terms of speech. And so what they did was they did experiments where they put a divider in front of the person. And they would ask the person, in their visual field, they could see from the right side, they could see an object in front of them. But what they had was a linguistic aphasia because the part of them that could express what they saw didn't see it, <laughs> okay? And so these people were both aware and also not aware of an object placed before them. What's interesting in these experiments is they would ask them then to go retrieve the object. I've seen the film. You'd actually see the right hand of the person fight with the left hand of the person <laughs> to, to retrieve the object. And I laugh, but it's just these commissurotomy experiments, the psychological experiments are just fascinating. So what he's suggesting is that something could have both a human range of knowledge and also a divine range of knowledge, just like the single person who has had a commissure. The problem is, is of course, is that God isn't a physical being, and it's not the case that a part of his brain knows what's happening and the other part of his brain doesn't. What we're saying is that Jesus is omniscient, it's just that as a human being, he didn't know he was omniscient. I can't really make sense of the claim. He also used an analogy to suggest, look, there's a distinction between being fully physical and being also essentially physical. So let me make a distinction between common properties and essential properties. Before Neil Armstrong walked on the moon in July of 1969, an event that I observed on TV in great awe, and I'm still amazed by it, no human had the property of having walked on the moon. But once Neil Armstrong set his foot on the moon, he had the property, of, for the first time ever, of a human having walked on the moon. It's not an essential property of human beings that they have the property of not having walked on the moon, because human beings could walk on the moon. They just hadn't done so. So it's a common property of human beings to have never walked on the moon, but that common property ceased to be common when people actually walked on the moon. An essential property, however, is one that a human being logically cannot have, and this is what's important to understand. 
logically it's impossible for a human being to leap a tall building in a single bound. Our physical makeup just isn't made that way. We wouldn't be the kind of thing that humans are if we could you know, leap a 25-story building in one bound as Superman does. We'd have a Kryptonian nature if we did that. In any event, Morris then considers an alligator. He says an alligator has spatial temporal location and mass, and thus has all of the properties essential to being a physical object. And thus, it has a fully physical object like a diamond, but it's not merely physical. A living being is also animate and living. So unlike a diamond, which is a fully physical object, an alligator has additional properties. And so a, an alligator is fully physical, but it is also something more. It's not merely physical. An alligator is also something more. It's living and animate. And so now he wants to suggest that there's a distinction between being merely a human being and being fully a human being. And he's suggesting that Christ had a fully human nature, whereas we have merely human natures. So we have all the properties of being a human, and Christ has all of those same properties and some more divine properties. Okay, And so he wants to use this analogy again, the distinction between an alligator and a diamond, to suggest the difference between being merely human and being fully human. The problem is, is that the alligator has all of these physical properties as does the diamond, but to be divine, we have properties that a human being can't have, and that's the distinction. A diamond has all physical properties, and an alligator can have physical properties, but if we said that the alligator also had the property of floating in the air at will, it wouldn't be an alligator, and that's the kind of thing we're asserting when we're saying that something is both fully divine and fully human, because the properties are complements of one another. They're denials of the same property. And so the analogy that he's using is one that won't logically work. As brilliant as the argument is, it, it just doesn't really work when we consider what it really means. I also want to point out something that I think is often fully missed by people who are discussing Christology. And that is that Nisaya didn't really solve the problem of the relationship between the Father and the Son. The issue at Nisaya wasn't whether the son was the same being as the father, as many people want to assert. It's not even whether or not they were in some kind of a union such that we could maintain monotheism. That wasn't the issue at all. The issue was whether or not Christ as a human being came into being at some specific point and whether or not he had the same nature as God because God is essentially uncreated and has what we call logically necessary existence or necessary existence. And human beings don't have that kind of existence. But what we want to assert of Christ is that he has always existed like God has. He had a pre-existence as the Gospel of John asserts. The problem is, is that Nisaya missed the issue. Nisaya solved the problem by saying that Christ was eternally begotten which means that, that the Father somehow eternally gives rise to the existence of the Son and that the Son's existence is somehow dependent on the Father. I don't know how else to read the term eternally begotten in the Creed of Nicaea any other way. The problem is, is that means that Christ is still on the wrong side of the ontological divide. He is still has contingent existence dependent on another being and not necessary existence as is required for divinity. So, what I want to assert is that Nisaea, which was at 325 AD, you know, 125 years before Chalcedon, I want to say that it really didn't solve the problem that most Christians think it addressed and solved. 
In fact, it left Christ still on the created side of the ontological divide and didn't solve the issue because it, re- it didn't speak in terms of necessity and contingency in terms of existence, but rather whether or not Christ be- came into being at some specific point in time. A thing can have always existed from all eternity as long as it's created in every moment by another being that exists of necessity in every moment. But it would have a different kind of existence. So let's say that in every moment I've existed for all eternity, and in every moment that I've existed, I have decided to think a certain thought. That thought exists in reliance or independence on the fact that I've chosen to think it. It's not the case that the thought has necessary existence. It still has contingent existence, even though it has always existed in every moment of an eternal existence. And so there are two different kinds of existence. And that's the issue that I think that they missed at Nisaiah. I don't think that they solved the problem at all. And so I want to bring it back and say it's still a logical problem that hasn't been solved by the creeds. This is part of the Christological problem, and Nisaiah didn't give us the groundwork for having solved it. The people at Chalcedon thought that that problem had been solved, and so they didn't really address it fully. But it's still a problem. All right, so that sums up the traditional responses section. And next we're going to have Jacob talk about some other theories, the canonic theory and the grace theory. So you go ahead there. All right, yeah. Um, so the canonic model fully explains a biblical perspective in terms of leaving behind not only properties of divinity, um, this is Christ when he, when he comes down to the earth, but also positing a veil of forgetfulness so that Jesus was not aware of his divine identity except as it was gradually revealed to him throughout his ministry. And in the Bible, it talks a little bit about where this canonic theory is coming from, kenosis. If you could go into that a little bit, Dad. There are a number of scriptural bases for kenosis, but I think that the prayer in John 17 is probably the best place to begin to understand. First of all, in Philippians, the Greek term that is used for saying that Christ essentially became a human being is a form of the verb kenosis, which means to empty oneself. It means it's the kind of thing you do to a glass when you pour it out. And so the notion is is that he empties himself of the divine attributes and properties in order to become human. For instance, take John 17, as I suggested, which says in verses 4 and 5, I glorified thee on earth, having accomplished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, Father, glorify thou me in thine own presence with the glory which I had with thee, before the world was made. And so there seem to be a number of claims made here in this statement. The first is, Jesus Christ once had a divine glory before becoming mortal, and he enjoyed oneness with the Father before the world existed. The second, at the time of the prayer in Gethsemane, Jesus didn't possess a fullness of the divine glory because he's asking God to restore it. And third, that Jesus anticipated regaining the unity and in gaining their unity, regaining the glory which he had with the Father before the world was. So the notion is, before I became human, I had a certain glory with you. I became human. I don't have that glory now. And I'm asking you to restore it to me. And so we have this notion of kenosis, giving up the divine properties. We also have this notion of that Christ as a human being, at least up to the time of this prayer, didn't fully enjoy the divine glory that he had before he became mortal. And so what he left behind when he became mortal was a certain glory, light, power, and divinity. And it can be restored to him again through resurrection or possibly earlier, because he's asking God to restore it to him as a part of his prayer. Okay. 
And you come up with the three big problems with the canonic theory. First of all, adopting the traditional view, Jesus being the son of God or God the son and being part of the Trinity is that when he comes down on the earth, if he is fully human, then who is left to be fully divine and who's playing God while God is on the earth? Yeah, the notion is, is if the Son and the Father are just one being, really, and that one being, for a period of time, becomes mortal, who's running the universe while Jesus is on earth? If that's the notion that you have of the relationship between the Father and the Son, it seems to be really a problem because there's nobody running the universe. Okay. And I guess we'll go over these three problems and then how they can be solved. The second one is a, is a criticism that's asking, I mean, if God can just choose to give up divine properties for some period of time and somehow still be God, how does that work? Here's the notion. I've made a distinction between properties of an individual identity and properties of a kind. So, for instance, I'm a mammal. That's a property of a kind. But I also have properties that are essential to be me, the individual person that I am. But it seems to me that both are essential to the kind of thing I am. I couldn't be me without being a mammal. And so the question is, how is it possible for a divine being to remain that same divine person and yet give up a divine nature? Because I couldn't give up a human nature and still be me. That's essential to me. Well, why isn't the divine nature essential to the identity of Jesus? How can it be give upable? is essentially the question. Strange question, but an essential question. Well, and also part of the question is, correct me if I'm wrong, but if it is give upable, if you've given up omnipotence and all these godlike powers, how in a state of no longer being divine or godlike are you able to get those powers back? Yeah, I mean, so for instance, let's say that Jesus and the Father are, are one and the same being. He gives up the properties. He's given up the property of omnipotence. He's lost the power to make himself divine again, it seems. How does he do that? Plus, he's given up omniscience. He doesn't quite know how to make himself divine again. And so, you know, he's created a real mess for himself. Okay. I don't know if I identified that right. You said there were three problems. I think that second part of that, that was the third problem, because you never really said outright the third criticism. Was that, did we just go over the third problem or criticism of? Yeah, the third, pro the third problem is that God seems to have given up properties, but has no way of getting them back. All right. So just a quick overview that the, the standard canonicism is asserting that in the incarnation, Christ gave up the divine properties, which are inconsistent with being truly human while retaining those properties sufficient to remain truly divine. That is, Jesus of Nazareth was in fact divine and human at the same time. So in that view, God is used as a proper name so that the person who is God essentially possesses divine properties in the sense required of the doctrine of essential predication. Yeah, so what we're saying is, is that when we're using God not as a kind term, but as an identity term, when we say essential predication, what we're saying is, I can't be the person or the kind of thing that I am unless I have this particular kind of property again. And so in standard canonicism, what we want to say is that somehow he still remains not fully divine, but he still remains divine. He has those properties which are essential to divinity, even though it's merely divine. You know, we've talked about the distinction between merely and, and fully divine earlier. And so what's being asserted in the standard canonic view is that Christ is still both human and divine. He's just not fully divine while he's human, and he's not fully human while he's divine.
So we have some set of properties, nevertheless, which remain essential, even though they're not expressed in their fullness. So take one of these properties. Jesus still has knowledge. He just doesn't have a completion of knowledge. He still has power. He just doesn't have a completion and fullness of power. So we want to say that he still possesses these properties in a sufficient degree to be considered divine. So we need to redefine what the essential properties of divinity are. That's one of the tasks of a canonic theory. It seems a difficult task. So, for instance, let's ask, would it work to alter omnipotence? We can say that, you know, what omniscience means in the canonic theory is not knowing all truths, but something like knowing all truths unless voluntarily willing not to know some truths. That's the actual divine property. Okay? So I know everything unless, so for some reason I voluntarily choose not to know everything. But the question is, would that work for all the properties? And I'm not sure it works for omnipotence, because I can possess omnipotence even while I'm not exercising my power. I can't be omniscient even while not knowing, okay? Mm -hmm. So, first of all, there's this distinction. It's the ability to act that defines omnipotence, not the actual acting, whereas having actual knowledge is omniscience, not the ability to be knowledgeable at some point. So, there's this distinction. But if we define omnipotence in a way that we redefine omniscience in canonic theory, so, for instance, to say that Christ is able to do anything logically possible unless willing not to do so, it seems that he still is omnipotent, even as a human being, because he can reclaim his omnipotence at any time. (laughs) Okay? So Mm -hmm. on the cross, what's the distinction between a Christ on the cross who doesn't exercise all the power he could, if he wanted to, and a person who just doesn't have the power to exercise it? So it seems like he simply is omnipotent throughout, and he really doesn't suffer again as a human does, because one of the problems of human suffering is the hopelessness and the inability to change our circumstances, the limitations on our power to make a difference in the world around us when we would choose to do so. But we can't say that Jesus suffered in the same way that we do, because if he's omnipotent while he's sitting there on the cross, if he can dispatch the Roman legions anytime he chooses, then his suffering is certainly very different than the human suffering would be, it seems to me. And then to address some of these concerns, or to make better sense of them, there's this idea of radical canonic theory, primarily focusing on that issue of having God be able to be on the earth, God the Son, yet having God the Father still ruling the universe. If you go a little bit into well, radical know, canonicism, they... it's the view that he gives up essential properties of divinity. He really is fully human, but he's not fully divine. So this makes a temporal distinction. While the standard canonic theory would assert that Jesus is divine even while he's a human being, radical canonicism would say, no, he gave up all the properties of divinity. He was fully divine. He became fully human, and then he became fully divine again, but not at the same time. So that's a more logically consistent view of Christ, it seems to me, more consistent with scriptural claims about Christ. But it's not going to be consistent with the claims made at Chalcedon that, that Christ was at one and the same time both fully human and fully divine. And also pointing out that in the radical canonic theory that God is not a personal name but a title term or a role indicator. So even if Christ is fully human, he's still God the Son because that is his role. Right. And so instead of talking in terms of properties that are essential to his identity, we're only talking about those that are essential to the title divine in the same way that, for instance, the mayor of Boston has to be an elected official, but 
that doesn't mean he couldn't cease to be the mayor of Boston. <laughs> okay, He could give up the property being an elected official, even though he once had it. The problem is, is it seems that, it, at least in the tradition, this theory founders again on the same ontological problem that plagues the two-nature theory of Christology, and that is, well, is Christ still uncreated? This is a divine property, but if Christ is uncreated, then he has a property that no human has ever had in the tradition, that is, being uncreated. And you can't give up the property of not being created. It's not like if you're uncreated, you can become created at some time, okay? So this is not a property that can be given up in, in the way that the canonic theory seems to view giving up the divine properties. So again, we have a divine property that is ungiveable. That is the property of having never been created. And it seems to be a property, at least in the tradition, being radically contingent, being dependent on another for our existence and not having necessary existence seem to be very essential to the traditional view of human beings. And so, again, we would have to say Christ was not really human because he had a property that no human being could possibly have, that of being uncreated. That's all I have under the, the canonic theory. Do we want to go over anything else there before we move on to the grace theory? Well, we're going to talk more about the canonic theory when we get to a Mormon Christology in the next chapter. So it's important to keep the kind of distinctions that were made about the divine properties. So, for instance, the divine properties are not just full-out claims of having a property. They're properties that a being has unless being willing to give up the property, at least for specific types of properties. And so I want to keep that distinction in mind when we enter into the discussion next week when we're discussing the Mormon view. Okay. All right. And then that moves us on to the grace theory, which John Hick puts forth. And the grace theory asserts basically that Christ is transformed into a being, sharing the divine properties by being infused with the Father's grace. Hicks states, we see in the life of Jesus a supreme instance of that fusion of divine grace, inspiration, and creaturely freedom that occurs in all authentic human response and obedience to God. So, could you go a little bit deeper into the grace theory and what that entails? What we're talking about here is essentially the paradox of grace. It's what Paul said, you know, I do it, but I do it by the grace of God, so I really don't do it. It's really done by God. So every action is kind of a dual action, if you will. And so to the extent that Jesus perfectly reflected the will of the Father in his actions, he partook of the divine nature because his acts were really the acts of God because they're the acts of God acting in him through grace. And his acts were God's acts because he's reflecting God's will and he's acting by God's power to do the acts. I don't know what more you would need to add to a definition of an action to say that it's really the action of God and not the action of the human being. Reflecting, of course, the kind of language that Paul used in his epistles. That's the kind of thing that is being pointed out by the grace theory, is that one becomes divine by the grace of God, and that we are given a power. We're infused with God's will and the power to fulfill God's will. And so when Jesus was doing the miracles, it wasn't Jesus in his own power doing the miracles. It's Jesus doing the will of God, and through the power of God the Father, He's able to do the miracles. It's not his own power. And so when he does these things, it's the Father acting through him, essentially, because Christ is only doing the will of the Father. That's kind of what the grace theory is asserting is the relationship between the human and the divine in the life of Christ. Okay. 
And so this shows that Christ is pretty much just an extraordinary human. He, he doesn't have the, the power at all, like you were saying. The, the only reason that all this is happening is because he's fulfilling the will of the Father. He's extraordinary in that he can fully embody the Father's will, but it's actually the Father that's doing everything. However, the primary reason to reject the view that Christ was human, or even a human endowed with the Spirit of God to a supreme or unique degree, is that Christ is experienced by Christians as a savior. Yeah, I mean, the argument of Athanasius that Christ could only save that which he is, he could only save us to the extent he could bring us to be divine, and he could only bring us to be divine if he himself were fully divine. It seems that Christ is not unique in any way. I mean, a human being conceivably could reflect God's will fully in the same sense. And so there's nothing really unique about Christ, but then the question becomes, how does he atone for sin in a way that is uniquely the power and capacity of Christ to do, which seems to be a bedrock kind of teaching of Christianity, that is through Christ's atonement that we're forgiven and have the power to repent. The problem with the grace theory is that it doesn't seem to give its due to the truly divine nature of Jesus. It also still founders on this problem, I'd ask this question. Is Christ created or uncreated? If he's created, then he has a human nature. He only participates in the divine nature to the extent that a human being is capable of doing so, and so he's not divine. He's reflecting the divine to the extent proper for human nature, and so Christ is merely human on this view. And so the grace theory, again, is not going to be explanatory of the kinds of claims that are made at Chalcedon. The question is, is that Hick would claim that this is more consistent with the works in the New Testament, as we actually find them in critical biblical scholarship, the early high Christology folks would certainly disagree with Hick's reading of the Bible and wanted a search for Christ. And so they're, you know, they're going to say this isn't adequate to the biblical record in the text on any view. We, even though we have a lot of different views in the biblical text, this doesn't seem to be one that is consistent with the views as they have developed in Christianity based upon the New Testament text. Okay. Let's see. that. That's about all I've got on the grace theory, we've kind of gone over where it's got issues. Uh, is there anything else we want to go over that before we wrap it up and prepare for a, a Mormon Christology next time? No. Keep in mind that when we discuss a Mormon theology, what we're going to do is marry canonic Christology with the grace theory and the ontology provided to us by Joseph Smith to address these issues and totally redefine the issues. This grace theory seems to be, at least from what I've read, a theory widely adopted by those that are process thinkers that are still Christians. I think if you follow process theology, you kind of have to adopt kind of this grace theory where Christ can't necessarily be God himself because God is pretty limited in his power on that view. There's no question that this is a view that would be consistent with a process view and is in fact, I would say, essentially the view adopted by every believing Christian process philosopher and theologian, because it's a view that would have to be adopted. God is a completely different order of being, because obviously God is the initial aim, the power that is given to be synthesized into the creative moment of each actual occasion, and Jesus clearly was not that. And so if that's what we mean by God or divine, that's not the kind of power that Christ reflected. It's not the kind of relationship to the universe that Christ has. And so the grace theory is one that is most consistent with process thought. Okay. And I'd just like to point that out because there's a 
at least from what I see, a lot of Mormons, and I do, I like a lot of process thought as well, but if you follow process thought to its ends, it does result in this kind, you kind of have to have this kind of theory of Christ, and I don't think we as Mormons can quite go there. So that's just something I thought was important. Yeah, no, I think we're in agreement on that. On the other hand, I, th I think we can say that there's a lot about process thought the Mormons can adopt without adopting it wholesale. But keeping in mind that it's our Christology that would mean that process thought is not going to work wholesale for us. All right, makes sense. All right, and so, yeah, I mean, that sums up the chapter. And again, this doesn't cover every single point of view of Christology or the problems, but this is enough of an overview and a taste so that, you know, we can kind of understand what it is next that a Mormon view would need to cover and solve. And that is what we'll talk about next time. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.